There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, and welcome to part three of The Biography of Reason, a dialogue ba- between Tim McIntosh and myself, and I am Andrew Kern. Hey, Tim, how are you? Andrew, I'm great. How are you? The, the, I am on a phone now. The previous two podcasts were clear, great recording because you and I were on mics opposite each other, and now I'm on a phone. We apologize, seriously, listeners, to for the lower quality yeah yeah and now i understand why when i keep looking over at you you're not there yeah explains a lot when i was walking up a stair i met a man who wasn't there i met that that today oh how i wish he'd go away i'm pretty sure it's lewis carroll it's some it's some british uh poet from the 19th century or early 20th might have been edward lear edmund lear lear the lear guy who, who who writes weird poetry Anyway, it seemed like to recite a bizarre poem like that would be really appropriate on a podcast about reason, especially it being from the 19th or 20th century and reason is in its dotage. Hey, help me out here, Tim. I'm in my dotage. I'm trying to remember what we've talked about. And here's what I remember. In the first session, we gave an overview of the whole biography of reason, its birth in, in ancient Israel Moses and the burning bush and Homer, I'm sorry, and also in among the Greeks with Homer. And then we, we kind of rushed through the Greek conception of the Logos and how that really is reason. And we talked about some of the highlights among the Greeks. And then I think we talked about some of the highlights among the Romans, how they inherited the Greeks and systematized it. Mm-hmm. Then we talked about the church fathers in the Middle Ages. I think, didn't we talk a bit about Boethius? We did. That was the, okay. first, that was the first podcast we talked about Boethius. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then, so then we talked about medieval dudes, which would include him. Um, We talked somewhat, as I recall, about the difference between Byzantium and Western thought, Mm -hmm. but not very much. The Renaissance and the Reformation and the rise of skepticism around that time. And then we talked 
as I recall, we talked rather a bit about the Enlightenment because I think you and I agreed that the Enlightenment, <laughs> I would say, is badly named. And and a propaganda name, right? It's kind of like Oedipus pokes out his eyes and then tells everybody else they can't see. <laughs> um, so, so that leads to modernism, to to a utilitarian, and, a po- and then ultimately to the postmodern era. That's how I remember yeah. the first episode. Yeah, that's how I remember it too. Oh, it is okay. Okay. Yeah. Any, any highlights I, you want to draw from that? Well, I think we had basically six chapters, if I can recall them, the six chapters were something like um, Greek, then Roman, then medieval. And we kind of acknowledge that the medieval era is such a broad and long era that we were going to mm-hmm. kind of oversimplify. And we're going to oversimplify all of these. All of it, um, yeah. but probably We're probably going to do the worst injustice to the medieval era. Then renaissance and reformation and then modernism and i was kind of arguing for including the 19th century and you said yeah and that's kind of the romantic age so let's call the 19th century romanticism and then into the 20th century and postmodernism right okay good and and i i you know what this reminds me of something about 15 years ago i used to do a talk called this the viruses of the modern mind and it it deals with with um some of those things i believe that there's three meta viruses rationalism empiricism and romanticism and i mean romanticism by that i mean that the the low form of kind of rousseau's romanticism mm-hmm. um and all of the other viruses are are um strains that evolved out of so to speak devolved out of those viruses mm. and what we've seen is this ongoing fragmentation of of the human mind over the last few centuries but i i just say that sort of to say here's another way to think about this maybe yeah. maybe someday we could talk about those those viruses and see if you agree that that's an apt term they went viral um <laughs> so ideas second, go was- viral that was the second talk. We kind of did the picture album of these different eras, but the, sorry, that was the first talk. And the, the second talk was more than anything else about Moses and off the air. I was telling you how much I thought, how impressed I was by how you understand the birth of reason to be found in Exodus three fourteen. Do you want to do a little recap of that for our listeners before we turn back to the, and let me, can I say one thing before? Sure. Um, we do that, Andrew. We've kind of been talking about there are these two strains, and we're talking about them kind of side by side. There's the the Hebrew strain, and Christianity would be part of that when it comes along during the time of the Roman Empire. That is sort of traveling alongside the Western civilization strain. The picture Let's album. Call it the Hellenist, the Hellenist sure. strain or the Greek strain. Um, so those two are, those are like two streams that are traveling side by side. And I'm sure we'll jump from one stream into the other stream and then back into the other stream from time to time. It's a little bit of a false picture that I just created saying there are two streams that are running side by side because they certainly commingle, especially when Christianity becomes much more of a presence during the late Roman empire. But 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just wanted to remember that for our listeners that there are these two streams and we're kind of jumping back and forth in them until they begin to commingle um, probably what 300 years after the birth and resurrection of Christ. Well, we could, we could, we could debate about whether it's that long. Um, I would contend that they commingle beautifully in the gospel of John, but um, I like the way you put that very much because you acknowledged it's a false picture, which I think you're wrong about. That's not a false picture. It's just a simple picture. And the way, the way I always think about this, and maybe I've said this earlier is I always, I always acknowledge, I try always to acknowledge that my understanding of any issue like this is a caricature. And as long as we understand that, that to start with, we have to talk in broad sweeping generalizations. We have no choice. Uh, we have to talk in thick black lines where, because our understanding needs that, mm. but reality doesn't, you know, the, the closer we look at things, the more we'll realize that the thick black lines really are permeable membranes. Right. And, and I think a, a good example of that is precisely the, the role of Moses in reason we tend to think of the Hebrews as a people of faith and the Greeks as a people of reason. And again, if you want to put, put it in thick black lines and caricature what reason is and caricature what faith is, okay, fine. But I'm prepared joyfully and, and even assertively to argue that reason is probably the gift of the Jews, of the, of the Hebrews to the world more than it is of the Greeks. And the reason and people can listen to the previous podcast if they want more detail on that. But the basic reason for that is because of Moses meeting with, with our Lord at the burning bush. And he said to him, whom shall I say has sent me? And the Lord said to him, tell them I am. Now, I acknowledge immediately that the wording there in Hebrew is extremely difficult to translate, probably impossible to translate. But it certainly includes the notion of beingness, that the Lord is. And, and every bit as importantly, it points to the fact that, that our Lord is saying to Moses, I am not the God of the Egyptians. I am not a pagan deity who happens to be in this bush right now, right? Because that could easily happen. In, in the pagan mind, a burning bush that isn't being consumed could easily just be, you know, a local deity. And the Lord is saying, no, I'm not a local deity. I am, I am. And therefore, if you're looking to the traditions that you've received from your two streams, the Egyptian and, and the Hebrew stream, the, the Abrahamic stream versus the uh, Egyptian stream, if you like, our Lord is telling Moses, it's the, it's, the, it's the Abrahamic stream. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that means that I'm the God who spoke the world into existence. I spoke the world into being. I am not the world and the world is not me. That's implied. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the world that you live in, as I declared, is good. It being good, it's worth knowing. And what astounds me, and, and, and this is a, a source of never-ending wonder to me, is how among the ancient Greeks and among the ancient Hebrews, there was a sense of a good world that is knowable. And among everybody else, there was a sense that the world is an illusion and unknowable. And that is the foundation of reason. One, that the world is good and knowable. 
and two, that it is made, created by the one who is. And that opens up philosophical speculation, theological speculation. Of course, therefore, it leads to error because the human mind can't, can't grasp it. But, but as long as we're faithful and we're consistent with the tradition of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Moses' mother, then we're safe and secure. And we can, we can reflect and speculate on these, on these really difficult matters. But more specifically, we can look at the world and steward it instead of being afraid of it. And I think that's so absolutely crucial to the, to the whole development of the Western mind. The next point I made, and I'll just end with this and then we'll come back to the, to the dialogue. But the the next point, I think I made this point and I should have, if I didn't, is that there is no question, but that the world of the seventh and sixth and fifth century BC was a world that was influenced, if not permeated by Hebrew thought. And that's because of the diaspora. There were, there were the Assyrians, of course, captured the 10 tribes, but, and then, and then What's the Babylonian. The, Andrew, what, is, what does diaspora mean? Well, that's what I'm explaining now. Okay. It's, it's, the, it's the distribution of the Jews throughout, or the Hebrews throughout the world. So, well, it's the distribution of anybody throughout the world. So, for example, you'll it hear about means the, like the scattering, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. anyway. Diaspora. I think, yeah. it's, I think spora has to do with seed planting. You throw seeds out. And so, so, um, so, for example, there's the African diaspora that people will talk about now. Um, when they were taken into slavery and really distributed throughout the world. And something very similar happened to the Hebrews when they were taken to Assyria, when they were taken to Babylon, when they were taken, then Persia takes over, and, and you know, then the Greeks take over. And throughout that world, either through captivity or through trade, Jewish thought is everywhere. So when, not terribly long later, the, the city of Alexandria is founded, it's a very Greek city in Egypt, and it has a Jewish district where, and I mean not like a ghetto Jewish district, but a, but a district where all these Jews gathered and they were safe there. And that's where the Septuagint was translated. Now that's, that's later, of course, than Hebrews, than, sorry, than Homer and then Aristotle and so on. But there's no question but that Hebrew thinking is, is um, I don't want to say permeating exactly, but it's influencing thought everywhere. There's a, a legendary story, for example, I don't know how well documented this is, but I saw it in Matthew Henry's introduction to Ezekiel, that Pythagoras, the, the, the great Greek philosopher, is said to have traveled to Assyria and to have met there a man by the name of, I think it was Assyrianus Nazarensis. And that would, of course, be the Latin way of putting it. But, but he, he met somebody there named Assyrianus Nazarensis, and the belief was that that was Ezekiel. And so, supposedly, Pythagoras was taught by Ezekiel. Now, he doesn't come back and teach the Ezekiel prophecy, but it wouldn't be hard to see why, if that never happened, somebody made it up, because Pythagorean thinking and Ezekielian thinking, or however you'd put it, have affinities between the two. And the point really is simply to say that doesn't prove, but it kind of illustrates how the Jewish mind, the, Jew, the Hebrew teach, the Hebrew customs and the Hebrew beliefs about reality were spilling. And, and the Lord is very clear all the way back in Genesis that, that if you, those who bless you will be blessed, right? And that you will be a blessing to the whole world. And so why should we be surprised if that happened among the Greeks? It's, it's, it's great. And for whatever reason, some of the Greeks embraced some of the really key Hebrew thoughts like that the world is good, knowable, and something we should get to know. 
which is what gives rise to the mind, which gives rise to reason. Andrew, would you be willing to say a little bit more about the commonalities between Pythagoras and Ezekiel? Well, I don't know a whole lot, but I would say this, that in both cases, you're dealing with quite mathematical people, right? And, and, and then secondly, quite mystical people. Um, you read the first three chapters of Ezekiel and you're looking at wonders. And if you try to draw pictures of them, you can't because it's more like a, um, a changing dynamic, right? You're watching these angels and wheels within wheels crossing the desert. And then you get to the, to the later chapters where Ezekiel starts to, well, let me just say, Ezekiel has a lot of math going on, a lot yeah. of numerical things going on. Pythagoras obviously is, is a mathematical guy. He gave us the Pythagorean theorem, or at least his school did. And, and so it's easy, and then they're both mystical. So it's easy to imagine that Pythagoras was off traveling the world and picked up this idea from Ezekiel, came home, made it his own. You, let's even say contorted it a bit. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it led to some pretty astounding insights right. that never would have been discovered without that kind of interaction. Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Okay, so... Transitioning, you said off the air that reason kind of has, um, I don't know, we, we, I keep using these Tim, analogies. Tim, yes, sir. Yeah. What happens off the air stays off the air. <laughs> that reason has kind of two uh, load stars, and one of them you just described uh, in Exodus 3.14, and the other you say is found in Homer. Could you tell me a little bit about that? I can try. Um, the thing about Homer is that, like like Moses, like the Old Testament, Mo- Homer embraces the world and and delights in it. And you know, he he's not a doctrinaire person. He's not a theologian by any means. He's not, or at least if he is, it's very um, it's all expressed in story. Um, rather, I suppose the Old Testament's like that too, isn't it? Every now and again, you get straightforward statements of belief, but generally speaking, those beliefs are simply manifested. Yeah. And, and I think Homer has a way of of uh, directing your attention toward things as they are, and delighting in things as they are, or at least just flat out accepting things as they are. And that drives the impulse to look at the world as it is. He's very sound medically, according to commentaries that I've read. He's very sound um, on what battle is like, according to soldiers I've spoken mm-hmm. to. Um, he just seems to he just seems to embrace reality. And then you run into, across passages like where Odysseus, three or four times, even in the Iliad, I believe. It'll say Odysseus communed with his inner, with his heart within him or with his mind within him. And I don't know how much you see that in ancient literature, but I find it fascinating. You see it in the Psalms. Um, some of the Psalms we, we easily forget are not prayers to God, but reflections within. Bless the Lord, O my soul, mm-hmm. right? And he's talking to himself. He's, he's, he's turning within. And in the same way Odysseus does that, and it, and it says something like um, Odysseus communed with his great heart within him. And mm-hmm. I think the word there is either, I think the word is noose, which probably in Homer would be better translated mind. It might be thumos, which would be chest, but I'm not sure. So I can't comment on that. Um, so what you've got is a, is a lot of reflection, a lot of thinking about what to do in tough decisions, 
a lot, a lot of interaction between people where they're reasoning together. Uh-huh. And I, I've, I've said and will and we'll contend, it would be hard to persuade me otherwise because the case is so strong that the Iliad is the greatest handbook on rhetoric ever written, and it was intended to be a handbook on rhetoric. It, it's much more than that, which is one reason it's such a great handbook on rhetoric. But in my opinion, nobody needs anything other than Homer to learn classical rhetoric. The, the, the work of Aristotle is a, a handbook summary of, you know, studying Homer and then studying other speakers and saying, this is what works and this is what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So then, so then rhetoric is the, the reasoning in community. Okay. But then there's logic and, and logic is when I'm looking within my own mind. And again, I'm oversimplifying, but logic is when I'm looking in my own mind and reasoning and trying to bring coherence to my own thoughts and, and to my experience. So what Odysseus does, Homer will, will say something like that Odysseus, um, what is it? Um, gazed within his own deep heart or something. I can't remember the exact wording and translators would do it differently anyway. Um, but anyway, Odysseus looks within, communes within his, his own deep heart and thinks about his circumstances. And, you know, so he's trying to bring harmony to his own mind, but also harmony to, to life, to his own experience, but harmony there. And then, and then you go further, and now grammar doesn't exist until really the first or second century BC as a sort of subcategory of the trivium, which doesn't exist yet either, but we have the organon. But grammar was thought of primarily as his logic until the second and first century BC, because at that point, two things happen. One is a school of thought that I think you'd be fond of, the Stoics. You know, you, you study some of the Stoics, right? I... I have a very complicated relationship with the Stoics yeah. and we'll yeah. talk all about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me say this. The Stoics believed in an ideal language and they felt that that ideal language was not verbal, but formal. And so if we could get at the form of language, we could get back to what we, you and I might consider a pre-Babel language, you know, some, some before le- the languages were divided, some I won't say primitive language because that would mislead. It would actually probably be far more complex than modern languages. Um, but there was this, there's this ideal language that the Stoics are trying to get back to, and that's why they developed grammar. But there's another reason that relates to Homer, and that is another reason for developing grammar, and that is that the Alexandrian school that I mentioned earlier where there was a strong Jewish community, the Alexandrian school, were, they were concerned that Homer was not readable anymore, that kids couldn't read Homer because his grammar was so complicated and different from their own. And so they developed handbooks on grammar in order to preserve the Homeric tradition. And I find that really fascinating that, that um, even the need to keep reading Homer among the Greeks led to such an important development in human thought, all of which revolves around reason, right? Reason, you could say rhetoric is reason in community. Logic is, is reason in your own mind where you're trying to bring coherence to your thinking. And then grammar is, is reason in each particular sentence where you're trying to make the parts of a sentence harmonize. All of that points to the influence that Homer had on reason. Andrew, one of the things that um, I think it's important for us to touch on is that Homer is writing to a polytheistic world. In a polytheistic world, he's a polytheist. And I wonder, gonna, well, you wonder, but let me, let me, 
let me make this point and then we can have a little conversation about whether or not like you think he's um a closeted monotheist <laughs> okay um but i think it's important in the in a discussion over reason because it's hard to underestimate how powerful like a polytheistic view of life how much it affects kind of everyday life. And the biggest issue as I see it, as it pertains to our subject is um, in a polytheistic setting, if the weather is rainy or if the sun is shining, um, it can very easily be understood as a God has manifest himself through the weather and there is another God that opposes that God. And that, that God will bring the sunshine. So in a polytheistic setting, it's very difficult to come up with a notion that there is a, a singular presence that is above. I'm not saying this very well. It's difficult to get to a rational understanding of the universe if you think that ultimate reality is polytheistic colliding forces polytheistic that's right now if you want to make the argument that homer is um a closeted monotheist i think your best bet i don't know i'm not going to be i don't think i'm going to be convinced andrew but it seems to me like your best bet is there's this underlying sense of fate that is um, that the gods are subject to, even Zeus is subject to this sense of abiding fate, and fate gets what fate wants. But it doesn't seem in Homer that fate is personified. Well, sometimes it is. Sometimes it seems like it's kind of an impersonal force, like the ocean. It just gets what it wants. It's indomitable. What do you think about that? I think that you're on to exactly the, the, the most um, challenging critique of my argument that could be made. Um, and I don't know that I have a, a direct answer for it. So let me try an indirect one, which is what Homer would do. Um, if we look at the Bible, in the very first verse, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the, and the magic word there is created. Well, the, the whole phrase is magic, but for, for, for right now, the, the word I want to feature is, is created. In a, in a polytheistic cosmos, I like very much what you said, that you have gods in conflict with each other. And any ancient tradition about the creation has something along the lines of mankind being slaves or at the bottom of some scale of being where above them are something like angelic or divine forces in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. And maybe transcending them is going to be some primal force that is uh, the one. But really, in west of India, I don't know how much the one was, was really believed in. I don't know if they got that far. Um, so, so you do have profoundly in a polytheistic culture... A, a conflict-driven cosmos. And that's why the miracle of Greek thought is that somewhere along the line, 
whether it be in Homer implicitly or explicitly after Homer, somewhere along the line, the Greeks believed that there was some logos, there was some principle of being yeah. that made all things one and that wasn't ultimately conflict. Now, some of them did believe ultimately it was conflict. And I think Heraclitus was one of those who ironically mm-hmm. developed the idea of the logos quite, quite a bit. But, but logos and cosmos are two crucial Greek words. And the idea of, a, I think you mentioned this previously, that the, the concept of a cosmos the word cosmos implies order an ordered harmony of things, right? And, and, in, and an ordered harmony of things demands a principle. And that principle is the logos. Mm-hmm. So a cosmos demands a logos. Now, where did the Greeks get that idea? Was it in, was it already in, in, in Homer? If so, it was only implicit, but here's, here's what I want to um, emphasize. And then I, I feel like, you're letting me, you're asking me questions that provoke me to talk too much. So I'm going to try, <laughs> try really hard to control myself. But having said that, I will now proceed not to. Um, the reason I mentioned the Genesis 1 passage is because there's a huge difference between creation and experimentation, between creation and ongoing development. And in a in a in in one view of reality, the Christian Hebraic view of reality, we live in a cosmos with a logos, a solar system with a sun, if you like, and the sun is the logos of the solar system, right, of the logos system, and so the, the, this idea that there is a logocentric cosmos, a a cosmos that makes sense, which by the way, our heart knows this perfectly well, um, our mind might not, but our heart does. Um, the the idea that there is such a thing leads to a, a mode of thinking that is, I'm going to say that this way, that is ultimately rooted in the analogy of being, okay, which is ultimately analogical, okay? Now, when I say ultimately, that means everything else is contained in that. It's not opposed to other modes of thinking. But if you believe in a world that is in conflict, a world that is perpetually developing through violence and destruction, Okay, that arises from an analytical mode of thinking being ultimate. Okay, now a- analysis is a tremendously powerful way of thinking and useful and good. I'm not opposed to it, but I'm opposed to it being made ultimate. And so here's the full circle then. If Homer is implicitly a monotheist, it is because he is what I would suggest is an analogical philosopher instead of being an analytical philosopher he is he the reason he's perfectly comfortable simply telling stories is because he understands so deeply that story comes first he understands so deeply that story is the embodiment of ideas and that apart from ideas being embodied they cannot be known he understands that 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 we live in an analogical cosmos and I don't know how much he, he's conscious of it. You know, if you turn Homer into a philosopher like Aristotle, you'll be laughed out of court in the, the academy. Um, but I think there's something going on that he's aware of where he's, um, he's teaching the Greeks how to think and he's teaching the Greeks how to organize themselves and he's teaching the Greeks how to communicate and how to make decisions and how to reason. And he's doing it on purpose, I believe. 
And how much of that he intuits there's a Logos and how much of it he consciously believes there's a Logos, I can't say. Yeah, I, right. I, I, do, I do think that the teachings, that the stories Homer tells about the gods make the gods not credible. So, so if I'm, if I'm a, a Greek pagan, I'm not going to think to myself, these are the best gods you can have. <laughs> he, you know what? He, he, seems, he seems to hold out the gods for your contemplation, but to do so in a way that by comparing them with each other and their actions, you end up saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't work. And that's why, possibly, Plato, for example, argues in many of his dialogues that you can't just follow those gods. Mm-hmm. And Plato does become something like a monotheist. So does mm-hmm. Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And is that because Homer raised the questions that led to monotheism? I suspect it is. I don't know, but I suspect it is. Whether Homer himself was a conscious monotheist, I, I acknowledge, is unlikely. But what he was, and what I'm getting at here, is he was certainly an analogist. He believed in a cosmos in which everything was like everything else, and things were revealed by looking at them. And he was not an analyst where everything is at war with everything else and things are revealed by cutting them in pieces. Yeah, most definitely. And so I used the um, phrase earlier, he was a closeted, maybe he was a closeted monotheist. But to say back to you what you're saying, that's not exactly it. It's more like he was... um, he was sort of a monotheist who who was living in a culture in which the imagination was thoroughly polythe- polytheistic. Is, this, is it something closer to that? I think so. Yeah, and and I think you know we're looking at we're looking at a Greece coming out of its dark age. They've had multiple invasions, and so they, they, he's in in Homer. You see the the layering of of the different invasions on the language that Homer uses, like the Doric and the Ionic, and so on. And and so he's coming out of he's writing as Greece is coming out of a dark age, and you have you have the deities of the different um, invaders and settlers all intermingling. And he's, he's reflecting on that along with poets leading up to him. He's reflecting on all of that. And so, so what I would suggest is that, is, here, let me put it this way. The heart of man, which I don't believe is the seat of the emotions, strictly speaking, it's the inner, it's the, what Peter calls the hidden man of the heart. It's that hidden man, the, the deepest inner self, right? That's yeah. the heart. Okay. The heart of man is monotheistic. The mind of man is chaotic when it's not guided by the rightly ruling heart, right? Mm-hmm. And so Homer, huh, I'm going to go Disney all of a sudden. Yikes. <laughs> Homer followed the heart more than he followed the mind. And I don't mean that in the modern sense of he followed his feelings right. more right. than he followed his rational thinking. He had a completely different conception of mind and heart, as does the Bible. But if but if we say if we see the heart as that inner that that thing that knows that directly perceives certain realities, like for example, that everything is one. Okay. Every time we think, what we're trying to do is make one, make harmony of what we're thinking about. Whether that's experience or whether that's um a math problem, whether that's a sentence, whatever it is, what we're always trying to do is harmonize because that's what the heart is constantly driving us to do. 
it uses the mind as its agent and the, and and then probably the senses as its instrument but the heart is always seeking that union and therefore it is monotheistic and logocentric the heart is and therefore when you're not monotheistic and logocentric you fall apart you 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 become you know stressed out and and homer therefore in that sense is monotheistic and logocentric because everybody is, but he was more attuned to the, to the nature of the heart than almost any writer who's ever lived. And that's why he could reveal so much about human nature in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Tim, is this where you wanted this conversation? I love it. I love it. But I think, so just to kind of like tell our listeners where we are, we're, we're in chapter one of our picture book. Um, we're with the Greeks and, now might be a good time, Andrew, to kind of start transitioning into classical Greece or classical Athens. Mm-hmm. So three, four hundred years after Homer, there is um, the Greek miracle. The Greek miracle happens. So let's talk about the Greek miracle. It's called the Greek miracle because there is such a profound outpouring of incredible advancements in virtually every discipline or field um, during this kind of very short, very vibrant period in Athenian culture um, that it's called a miracle because it's, for me, I think of it as a miracle because the sum of the parts is so much greater than the parts. It's just an explosion. Yeah. It's just, and there are all sorts of theories about why there's such a fecundity of creativity and insight, but you know, I don't know. There is something happen. When, when, um, 400s BC. I'm, I'm kind of like pulling that off the top of my head and I'm not good with dates, Andrew. You might be better with dates than well, I let's am. Let's frame it. Let, let's suggest, a, again, bold caricatured lines. Yeah. Let's say, I think it was, was it 494 when the Persians first? Let's just say 500. Easy okay. number to remember. From 500 BC, when the Persians attack the Athenians and the Athenians win. Uh-huh. And, and, and that's a whole series of wars that take 40 years to let's say, well, you know, you have the suicide of Greece then, which is still part of the miracle, amazingly, um, in the Peloponnesian War. And you could say that ends around 400. So we could say 500 to 400, but then we're excluding Aristotle and Plato. Right, so let's, right. say, let's, say 500, let's say 500 to 350. And then okay. if you want to extend it to include Alexander and, and that element, which I think is a decadent form of Greek thought, but let's let, we could push it to 500 BC to 300 BC, that 200 year period, but it's really concentrated in terms of the, the achievement that you just described. It's really concentrated between 460 and let's say Aristotle 350. Let's say, four, okay. yeah, let's that's say 450 great... to 350. Cause that's easy. I, I would also fight to include, um, Thales' prediction of the eclipse in ah, 585. Yes. I mean, that's just, just like, think about this. This is so incredible. When Thales, when Thales, he predicts that an eclipse is going to happen. And I just think about if I'm an ordinary, you know, polytheist, just kind of out there in the world. And I hear, you know, this guy telling me that he has looked at the stars 
and he perceives that they are ordered in such a way that he can make a predictive statement about when something that I believe is um, metaphysically terrifying night happening in the middle of the day. Yeah. Only by the yeah. gods would this happen. And he predicts that it happens. And it happens on the day that he predicts, May 28th, 585. I just think that that does something to your I ordinary. You said you're not good with dates. Well, that one's just a red letter date for me. That one always just stick out, sticks out for me. Because I think that's a day in which if you like actually eavesdrop on Thales predicting this and it comes true, I think that your world changes radically. Your internal orientation changes radically. Because yeah, you kill Thales for is, being a witch. <laughs> I, the world is no longer just a place that is a series of kind of like chaotic forces that I cannot see controlling things that I can see. It becomes something that makes sense, that is like able to be predicted. Um, Sometimes people call the prediction of the eclipse the birth of science. It's the moment where we go from kind of a reactive mode to a mode where we actually see that there's, oh, the, my goodness, there's, there are patterns in the world. We have the capacity to see them, to understand them, um, to even put them to our uses in some situations. This, this is a big moment. It, it, you're making me feel the bigness of the moment. I, you need to keep talking about this because, because what what's um, going through my mind is a comparison with the pharaohs regulating the Nile. And if the Nile is the great God that feeds us and destroys us, and the pharaoh can regulate the Nile, then that means the pharaoh is an even greater God. Yes. And so he becomes a divine figure among the Egyptians. But among the Greeks, Thales doesn't become a divine figure. He's just a thinker. Yeah. This is gigantic. Keep going. It's gigantic. And it's part of the reason I think that democracy happens first in Athens. And it's ultimately kind of a failed project, but we still point back to it as... Why Athens? Thales wasn't from Athens, was he? No, he wasn't. But I think that the notion that we can be thinking people who don't have to be reliant upon the pharaoh or some distant um, figure who is capable of predicting things or who has power over things that we don't have power over, I think that that begins to diminish. And you have the... It's perceived, maybe for the first time, that individuals have capacity um, to understand, and thus they can participate in the own destiny of their state, the own destiny of their household, the own destiny of their family. So human, human intelligence based on observing the world as it is versus political power based on um, using the terrifying nature of the unknown. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh. So this segues into our story very neatly. Thales is considered a pre-Socratic. We've mentioned Plato and Socrates already. Let's talk about the pre-Socratics. Absolutely. Um, The pre-Socratics obviously come before the Socratics, and there's a pretty big difference between these two. So um, I'll say the biggest difference between the pre-Socratics and the Socratics 
Can you tell me who they are first before sure. you get into the abstract? So, um, Thales, Socratics would be Thales. Uh, Heraclitus would be considered a pre-Socratic. Help me with some of the other names here, Andrew. Who is the guy that always fought with Heraclitus about uh, Parmenides, right? And, and Parmenides. So one said everything is all change and the other said nothing changes. Right. right. <laughs> there you have kind of like the two poles of philosophy, you know, yeah. like probably even now, right? Of course, you have, you have the older brother and the younger brother. You have Achilles and Odysseus. You have human disposition towards stability and human disposition toward change. That's the permanent... That's the permanent crisis intention that we always have to live in. And the goal is to harmonize them. So there's a tendency among the pre-Socratics. And the tendency is to seek that thing that you were describing earlier, an organizing principle, an underlying principle. Heraclitus might have been an exception in a way because he thinks the underlying principle is change. But for the most, the most part, pre-Socratics are inclined to look for kind of a singular, unifying substance, a pattern, a principle that kind of forms the substance of the Logos. Or um, I don't think in most situations they would probably not call it God, but they're driving toward a kind of primary understanding of the world. Yeah. And that's why I, I love this. Okay. So Heraclitus, if I understand him correctly, at least suggested, if only ironically, and maybe quite literally, that all is fire, right? Because everything yeah. is change and, and fire is energy. So what he was saying is everything ultimately is, we would say energy. Okay. Although Aristotle made up the term, so Heraclitus couldn't have, but but everything's fire. Who was the guy who said everything's water? Um, <laughs> wasn't Thales, was it? I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. Okay, it doesn't matter that much because what's fascinating is what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, this is the ultimate principle of everything. And so early on, the easiest thing to do or the most evident thing to do is to look at what is physically the foundation of all physical yeah. reality, which by the way, that's what scientists are doing now, right? They're trying to say physically, what is the ultimate, what is reality ultimately? And so there, so now there's the conflict between wave and particle. There's the singularity, there, you know, all that kind of thing. It's the same discussion that they were having in those days. But, but what fascinates me is they came up with basically four answers. One person said, everything is ultimately earth. One said, all, everything ultimately is air, one said everything ultimately is water, one said everything ultimately is fire. And those become known as the four elements, of course. But what, what the great, we can look back on that and laugh because we're so much smarter than them, of course, right? Because we, we've thought all this through so carefully. Um, but, but what they're all doing is saying, what is the organizing principle of everything? And it's not until I think Parmenides, after all four of those options have been considered, I think it's Parmenides who says it isn't physical. Mm -hmm. Whatever that first principle is, it isn't physical. And that's when the, the concept of the Logos, or at least I think they had another word too besides Logos. Maybe, I don't know what it was. But, but that's when that becomes a really significant issue among philosophers. 
I love that whole movement, though, because they're, they're, what they're basically saying is we don't live in a polytheistic cosmos right. and all is chaos. Something makes sense of this. That's the quest of good philosophy. Yeah. What is it that makes sense of everything? So Socrates has, even though he is the opponent, I'll back up. Socrates um, would have probably more in common with the pre-Socratics, of course, than he would have with the Socratics, even though he is sometimes in his own day accused of being a sophist. Um, so maybe a distinction here between kind of two camps that are developing in Socrates' time is the pre-Socratics and the sophists. So I would say the simple, different, the simple difference between the two of them is that the pre-Socratics are chiefly concerned with trying to discover, understand, see that one unifying force, element, principle. But the pre-Socratics are very much interested in, oh, they're interested in the human being. You mean, the, you, mean the the sophists or the, you mean the sophists? Did I say the Socratics? I meant the sophists. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They're, they're very interested in how to convince human beings and that kind of drive to discover the true underlying principle or element. That's just not an, that's not terribly interesting to them. Yeah. They you, know how you, to know what, you know what you just made me, made me realize is we, we skipped over among the pre-Socratics, the crucial one for this discussion, which is Pythagoras because because Pythagoras, okay, so I talked about the elements, you know, what's the first element? Yeah. Pythagoras comes along and says, it's number, right? It's not oh, physical. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's number. And now, what, why is that related to what you just said? Why did you trigger that? Because sophist, basically, you know, Socrates was accused of being a sophist, but they didn't yet think of the word sophist the way we do as, you know, basically a manipulator and a bad guy. Right, right. To them, sophist literally meant the wise one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pythagoras, however, and his school, and then people like later on, Nicomachus, they would never say, I am the wise one. They <laughs> would say, I am the lover of wisdom. Mm. Right. And so the difference I would contend is that it's the difference between philosophers, lovers of wisdom, and sophists, those who presumed to identify themselves as wise. And that's why the move where Socrates goes to the to the um, the famous story where he goes to the Delphic Oracle, who says to him, "You are the wisest of all men," is so profound because he could walk away from that and say, "Oh yeah, I'm a sophist." Yeah. Instead, what he says is, "Holy smokes, that can't be right. That's uh-huh. the worst thought anybody's ever had. <laughs> How could I be the? Can you imagine, Tim, if somebody told you you are the wisest living human being? Can you imagine how unnerving, how scary a thought that would be?" how despairing that would be. I mean, I, you are wise, Tim, so don't get me wrong here. No, 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 it would be, it would be despairing. I mean, if, if it is actually, if it's coming from the Oracle and you have reason to trust the Oracle, it would be alarming. Yeah, yeah. The and world so, would be in massive trouble if I'm the wisest one. So then instead of becoming the master who teaches others wisdom, Socrates becomes the quester who seeks for wisdom. Uh-huh. And that, and that becomes the whole mode of his life, especially what we haven't really talked about and don't have time for, I'm going to guess, is the, is the chaos of his life. Because he fought in the, in the Peloponnesian War, mm-hmm. came back to Athens and watched Athens commit suicide. 
Mm-hmm. And in that context, he's saying, what on earth happened? Yeah. Where's wisdom? And so he doesn't presume to have it, but he loves Athens and he wants to get it. And that, I think, is the crucial uh, distinction is that one group says, we're practical because we know enough. We'll teach you how to convince anybody of anything at any time. Don't worry about truth. That's just a distraction. Don't worry about justice. That's just a distraction. Just it's practical, right? They're, they're, they're early pragmatists. Yeah. And, and Socrates is saying, no, that's what destroyed us. That's yeah. what destroyed us as, as a city of Athens. I need wisdom. And so he, he puts in motion philosophy. And there's reasons within kind of socially or culturally in Athens why sophism because becomes such a valuable, esteemed kind of strain of thought. Um, with the rise of democracy, mm-hmm. there's if you have a lawsuit or you want to bring a lawsuit against a fellow Athenian, you're not going to hire a lawyer. You've got to argue your own case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what becomes of imminent importance, especially among younger Athenians, is the ability to convince and persuade because your whole destiny now is, 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 lies upon you being able to do that. And so a sophist comes along, Thrasymachus comes along, and he said he... Crito was one of his pupils, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew. But he promises, I can, I can show you how to convince. I can show you how to make a convincing case. The question of whether or not it's true or not, the question of whether or not it's wise or not, those are not important. What's really important is the ability to convince. Because if you can convince, you can take your own destiny in your hand. That's, yeah. And, and <laughs> so thoroughly is Socrates opposed to that, that he fails almost on purpose to convince when he's put on trial. You're absolutely right that, that the, the value of sophism is, is linked to the, the rise of, of independent rule, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about how it, it's cases in the court. There's also cases in the forum. There's concern for my well-being as an individual, which is where the sophist drives it. But Socrates keeps coming back to, but I love Athens. Yeah. Right? And so, so what's good for Athens, what's good for my community is, is always the, the tension point. Is it best for my community? Is it true that what's good for GM is good for America, as the guy said in the 50s? Is, is it true that my interests are the best interests of my community? And of course... That's not always the case. Right. And so sophistry has to be challenged by a bigger, a bigger context. And I think, again, that's exactly what's happening to America today is that we've been overcome, radically overcome by the pragmatists of today who are, you know, pragmatists, um, the sophists of today. And, we've, and, and the philosophers, they're dismissed. They don't have a voice. One thing that I think that we should talk about before we move on too quickly is we're kind of using Socrates and Plato interchangeably. Um, for somebody who's kind of new to the study of philosophy, let's talk about that for a second. Um, we don't have anything that Socrates wrote. There's, no, there's nothing that Socrates wrote. Everything that we have about Socrates, almost everything that we have about Socrates comes from Plato. So there's a question of, well, is Plato faithfully representing Socrates or is Socrates kind of a mouthpiece for Plato? I'll share my opinion for the sake of speed. Um, 
I kind of belong to kind of like the mainstream interpretation, which is the early writings of Plato, the early dialogues are more faithful to Socrates. And Socrates is not the mouthpiece of Plato, but it's more like Plato is the, um, the faithful representer of Socrates. So an early dialogue like Plato's Apology, which is the trial of Socrates, I read that as that's probably what Socrates said. And we've got another account of um, Socrates at his trial. And a lot of those two accounts kind of jive in some substantial points with each other. So I think it's reasonable to think Plato is kind of playing the faithful journalist and he's telling us what Socrates believes. Now, later Plato, I'm thinking of the Republic, it seems like Socrates has changed his tune on some fairly substantial philosophical questions, or if not changed his tune, he's at least um, amended his tune. And so I think, I think it's reasonable to think that Plato is there using, Plato is using Socrates more as the mouthpiece of Plato more than he's faithfully representing um, Socrates. So when someone says, oh, that idea is platonic, my hunch is most times what they mean is they don't mean that's Socratic. They mean that is, um, that, that, is in the development from Plato's later thought where he starts to diverge from Socrates. Do you have a different opinion on the matter? Mildly, mildly, mildly. Um, One of the things that's influenced my thinking on this is the discovery that among the Pythagoreans, there was a discipline that you would participate and, and Socrates was a Pythagorean and therefore so was Plato. You would participate in a dialogue during the day and then in the nighttime, your task was to rewrite it word for word. Huh. And, and so we, we who externalize our memories do not grasp, we do not grasp how powerful their memories were in the ancient world. And I believe that it's very possible that, that some of those early dialogues, as you said, the shorter dialogues are word for word exactly what happened, mm. almost word for word. Um, because they wouldn't write, you know, they wouldn't record it word for word, but, but they certainly they'd get it. This is what mm-hmm. actually happened. Mm-hmm. So I would distinguish, you use the term journalist and I know that you were speaking analogically, but I would use the word disciple. Plato was writing Socrates thoughts as a disciple following that discipline. Now you also use the term later Plato. And that's, that's a, um, I, I buy that. As you said, that's a mainstream concept. I buy that although it's harder to know what's earlier and later without importing assumptions into the discussion. Mm-hmm. So therefore I don't, I don't. Okay. But, but Plato isn't as a disciple of Socrates, Plato is never going to stop asking questions. So what I think happens is something like this, and it's probably not very different. I don't think he uses Socrates as a mouthpiece. I think he uses Socrates as an ideal or a pattern, a sort of person who thinks a certain way. And so in the early dialogues, we're probably getting more or less word for word what Socrates actually said. In the later dialogues, if that's what they are, then I think what we're getting is Plato saying, okay, if I were Socrates and I had continued to deal with these issues and I lived longer and I didn't get executed and I had this Lyce and I had the academy, where would, where would I have gone? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think what he's saying, therefore, is not, 
um, I'm going to use him as my mouthpiece, but I'm going to be a faithful disciple who continues to develop his thought. And I think there's a subtle difference between that, which might be manifested in the fact that one of his last works, The Laws, doesn't mention Socrates at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think basically I'm in agreement with you. Um, the nuance would be I prefer to think of him as a disciple instead of a journalist, which I think you probably do too. Yeah. yeah. And that I'm, I'm not sure about what's actually later, but what seems to be the distinction, what seems to be the Platonic addition, is a very developed and continually refined and expanded and adjusted notion that he's famous for called the form. Mm-hmm. And here, if we go back to Pythagoras, who argued that all is number, and if we go back to the pre-Socratics, who argued that all is change or all is one or you know whatever it is, earth, air, fire, water, everybody's looking for what is the unifying principle. Socrates comes up with the idea, or Plato comes up with the idea, that whatever it is, it's not physical. And therefore, since it's not physical, we're not going to find it in the physical realm. And that means we have to ascend to it through a, through a, a process of mental discipline. And the, the insight that he's got here, he may be wrong about what the form is, and certainly Aristotle, his disciple, challenges him on it. Yeah. But the, the insight he's got to the training of the mind is absolutely incomparable. And especially outside any Christian writings. What, what he, I should just clarify the form, the notion of the form is extremely hard to get, but basically it means that anything in the physical world has its own unifying principle, but that unifying principle is not limited to the thing you're looking at. So for example, if I look at 27 horses, no one of those horses contains all the elements of the unifying principle right. of horseness. Okay. So there is no physical ideal horse anywhere, but then what makes it a horse? Well, Plato says it's a horse because it's got all, it's got the features, the qualities it participates in the idea of a horse. And where does but, that idea, where is that idea? That's the problem, right? And what Socrates says is what our Plato does. It can't possibly be physical. Uh-huh. Therefore, it's not physical. It's in a non-physical realm. And so he called it the realm of the forms. Now, of course, what we do is we imagine some quasi-physical <laughs> realm out there, and we try to put it in time and space. And what he's saying is, no, you can't do that. So it's extraordinarily difficult. That's why, that's why he possibly had a sign over the academy that said, let no man ignorant of geometry enter here. And, and to, to some of, some of the listeners, and by the way, we're well out of time, but, <laughs> but one, one of the stories I like to tell is what the, the effect of Euclid's geometry, the first sentence on my mind, because his first sentence is a point is that which has no part. If you want to understand, as opposed to just memorize and follow the rules for geometry, you have to meditate on this notion that a point is that which has no part. That means it's not physical. It doesn't uh-huh. have parts. And that thought draws you to a different level of insight, a different mental capacity even, than if you never, if you never con- somehow or another, we have to come to the, to the realization that there are things that exist outside of time and space. And that's what Plato was saying reason helps us to see. That's the power of reason. And that's when reason, in a certain sense, reaches its highest energy level 
And it wouldn't be too hard to say if Homer didn't give birth to Western civilization, certainly Plato did with the conception of, of the form. Andrew, have you found that your younger students are kind of, um, they're kind of Platonist um, (laughs) by default? Because young people are? Do you mean because millennials are? Are there young people? No, no. I mean, because young people are. I mean, I know I'm, I'm not a Platonist now, but I know that when I kind of began my thinking life, my first stop, and I don't mean, my first stop was Platonism. I just thought the idea that all horses correspond with hoarseness in formland, that was so powerful to me. I mean, it still is powerful. I don't want to make mm-hmm. it sound like, mm-hmm. oh, that was such a juvenile thought. It's a tremendously powerful notion. In some sense, um, it's true. And I, I almost wonder if epistemically it is kind of a, it's a very common beginning point. Um, huh. I, I even think that part of like, the lights turned on for me, philosophy 101, when I'm sitting in class and we're talking about Plato's theory of the cave. Uh-huh. When I hear that analogy, I remember just thinking, that's it. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's true. I don't know how or why, but that's true. So the analogy of the cave is this Plato talks about it in the Republic. Socrates talks about it in the Republic. Um, our life is like this. We are chained in a cave and behind us is two things, a fire and a series of let's call them large puppets. And the puppets are between us and the fire. And the fire is casting the shadows of these puppets against a wall so that all the people that are chained to their seats in the cave are looking at this wall that is flickering with these different shadows. And we can see forms and, oh, that's, a, that's an elephant. And we can make out what we think is reality happening in front of us. But we escape. We can escape from the cave. We go out from the cave, blinded by the sun. This is, this is the moment of illumination mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we no longer, now we see reality. We thought reality was those flickering shadows against the cave wall, but now we see as blinding as the sun is the real reality the philosopher rushes back into the cave to tell everybody you don't understand reality is outside the cave. We're outside. The cave is like the true nature of things. We're just looking at light play against instantiations of particular things here on the cave wall. What the heck is an instantiation of a particular thing? (laughs) Jeez, Tim, I was enjoying this till you popped my head with that one. And that's what Socrates understands his... You're not going to answer my question, are you? An instant, you know what an instantiation is? That's like me asking you what the diaspora is. All right. Well, I answered the question, so now you answer. <laughs> an instantiation <laughs> is a um, particularized, oh, I want to say embodiment. I like that. Of a thing. An instance of it. An instance of it. 
Socrates sees his task and all philosophers' task to go back into the cave and to let people free from their chains. See, here's the thing about that. He's giving us an analogy, uh-huh. right? It's a picture. And it's a picture that corresponds mightily, for example, to Hebrews. When we learn about the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle being a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. Yes. And so there's, a, there's, there's obviously an analogical truth that's contained in that. Now, the question becomes, when we, when we now examine the analogy and we look closely at what exactly Plato is saying, do we have to disagree with him somewhere? But mm-hmm. anybody who doesn't agree that there is a non-physical realm of being where things are invisible, free of time and free of space, well, I would have to argue doesn't believe in God then, right? So somewhere, in some way, what Plato's talking about is correct. And yet we know that in some way it isn't. So to your question, I think that, um, I think that young people are inclined to, uh, like you and I did, to embrace that idea of the cave Partly because if we think the idea of the cave, then just having accepted the analogy makes us feel like we're the ones on the outside of the cave. Exactly, exactly. Which is not necessarily the truth. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> but I do think that, 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 um, that the, the metaphor is so powerful because, as I put it before, in our hearts, we know that all is one. In the hidden man of the heart, the temple of God, the holy of holies, we know the law of God and we know what is appropriate. We know that all is one and we know and we seek harmony. So when we hear somebody describe for us in believable language what that might look like, speaking metaphorically, we respond to it. And that, that's, that's because when we're born, we are essentialists. In other words, we believe that horses we we okay if 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 a horse comes walking up to a one and a half year old child what does the child notice first right that, that that's that'd be the question and what people will often say is the hoofs because you know at that level or maybe he's being held so the nose the ears mm-hmm. none of that is correct what the child notices first is the horse <laughs> he notices the whole first. That's what the human mind does. And that's the same thing when we as adults encounter a work of art for the first time, or listen to a piece of music at the first time, or, or see a person for the first time. We encounter things whole first. And as confused masses, as Aristotle put it, we, we encounter them as essences manifesting themselves to us. Now, that's, of course, that's not what we think, but that's what it is. That's, that's what that's what happens. There is this essential thing, man, an instantiation, if you to go to your word. There's a, a specific instance of, a, of an essential thing that manifests it to us, and we take it whole. And then we start looking at it closer and breaking it down and saying, oh, hoofs, tail, mane, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I think we're, we're inclined toward Platonism is because we're born believing what he's explaining. We're born knowing what he's explaining to us. Yeah. It has to be educated out of us, not necessarily Platonism, but that perception of reality. Right, right. Dude, 
We are way over time. We're supposed to be all the way up to the Renaissance now, and you've got us bogged down (laughs) in some cave in prehistoric Greece. Well, okay, so way to go, Tim. When you and I were talking off the air, which I know should stay off the air, (laughs) we talked about maybe doing you know three more before we kind of call a close to the end of this series. Looks like it's twenty-three more now. I know. We're only just on the cusp of, we haven't really delved very deeply into Plato. We're just now on the cusp of Plato's student, Aristotle. Here's the good news. Yeah. Here's the good news. Everything in philosophy, every issue that's dealt with when it comes to reason has been already developed by the third century BC. And all that's going to happen the rest of the way is the issues. How do, is it Whitehead that said yeah, philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato? Of course, yeah. the, the correct statement would be that philosophy is a series of footnotes to Homer. But <laughs> we've talked about Homer. We've talked about Plato. We've talked about Moses. And you're right. Let's pick it up at Aristotle and, and talk about the, the discussion between them. But my contention is that after that, it's all just going to be acceptance or rejection or modification of what those guys say. And of course, Dewey and Nietzsche and, and, and um, Heidegger, to some extent, no, not Heidegger, but Derrida, certainly, the modern thinkers who are most dominant in the world are the ones who are most aggressively rejecting what Plato, Aristotle, and, and the rest of those thinkers developed. Maybe so a that, little homework assignment for our listeners could be... Oh, that's cruel. Um, to, <laughs> now, this is a fun one. Okay. Uh, look at Raphael's School of Athens and see how many figures they can identify that showed up in this podcast that we just did. Oh, good. Yeah. Two, the two central figures are going to be Plato and Aristotle. Oh, and you just ruined it for people who wanted to say that. Well, I think, yeah, you're right. Maybe I blew that. But, okay, let's do this. <laughs> I'm Based on what, we, what they now know on Plato and Aristotle, they need to identify which is which in the, uh, oh, good. In the picture. We haven't talked and, much about Aristotle yet, but I agree. That's a good idea. I think that they can identify just based on what we've said about Plato. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That might be a good thing, a good little homework assignment. And you and I can pick it up with Aristotle when we talk again. They also might be able to find Euclid. They could find Euclid and they can Waldo? find... Did they find Waldo? I think Waldo was left out. He was edited out by uh, communists. <laughs> they can find Socrates. He's a little bit harder to identify, but he's in the painting. Okay. All right. How about how about Thales or or um, Parmenides or Heraclitus? People with other people we mentioned or Pythagoras are any of them in it? I want to say Pythagoras. I'm not sure about Thales. Yeah, I'm not either. I'm not either. All right. Well, hey, do we give fun. him a quiz next time? Yeah, let's give him a, we'll give him a quiz next time. I, I want to make one comment here that I think is really important, though. We're talking about the biography of reason, and this discussion became very philosophical. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that people understand that reason and philosophy are not coterminous. They're not exactly the same thing. But that philosophers spend an awful lot of time thinking about what reason is and what its powers are and what its limits are. And, and therefore, it was necessary, if we're going to do a biography of reason, it was necessary for us to, to, to dwell on these, yeah. these giants of the, in the biography, Moses, Homer, Thales and the Eclipse. What a great story. 
and then and then Pythagoras and the pre-Socratics and sophists and all that. But there really is a biography taking place. There is a dialogue going on, and and it's and it's not it's not impossible to follow. It's very human. So exactly right. And I'll add one more thing onto that. You mentioned the sign over the School of Athens. Mm. Um, you used the word geometry. What was the full phrase that you used, Andrew? I, I think I said, let no man ignorant of geometry enter here. That's what I meant. And sometimes that is translated, let no man ignorant of philosophy. So you can even see right now in, you know who did that? in our story. What's that? You know who did that? That was, no, the, that, that was in the Baghdad school. That was when the, the, uh, the uh, Arab philosophers changed it from geometry to philosophy. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, around, around the 7th or 8th century, I think it was in Baghdad. Anyway, that's a digression. My apologies. You get to talk and I'm going to watch this. I'm going to not interrupt. <laughs> I just think there is at this point in our story a very close kinship between oh, I changed my mind. geometry and philosophy. They're yes. not understood as the exact same thing, but boy, they're really close. Oh boy, did you just open up a can right there. Okay, Leibniz. In the next... <laughs> One of the next sessions, we're going to have to deal with that specific point. But right now, gosh, we have to have some mercy on the on the people who we are do. listening to this. Let's Geometry and philosophy. Timothy Andrew McIntosh. I love you, man. I love you, too. This is great. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. You and you as well. Let's talk soon. Okay. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.